0: you're having a piece of art on your wrist and having it with you all the time rather than having it hanging on a wall or whatever else you know one does with pieces of art. But it's kind <laughs> of different. So I think there's a functionality to the underlying appreciation and desire for art.
1: What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collectors Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene if you have the time please subscribe and leave a review it truly helps thanks a bunch for listening and please enjoy today's guest on collector's gene radio every collector has their own style and that couldn't be more relevant and true with today's guest roni medvani when it comes to double-signed watches from the holy trinity or piece uniques from Cartier. Ronnie's really found a way to differentiate himself amongst all the other collectors out there. He's got a deliberate focus on odd case shapes and double sign dials, especially from defunct retailers. And he's been featured in numerous publications from Hodinkee to Revolution to Rob Report. And I'm truly just thrilled to be a part of that list. Rony is the perfect example of the idea to collect for yourself and not everybody else. And to say it was a pleasure to learn from him would be an understatement. So, without further ado, here it is, Roni Medvani, for Collector's Gene Radio. Roni, first, uh, I would like to thank you and welcome you for uh, joining me on Collector's Gene Radio today.
0: Thank you, Cameron, for having me. It's a great pleasure, and I look forward to.
1: Yeah, we we've been, uh, I guess, what you could call Instagram friends for for quite some time now. So it's nice to finally uh, get together since we haven't been able to do that in person.
0: Absolutely and it is strange with Instagram. you sort of know people all over the world, and sometimes you you know you never meet them, and sometimes when you do meet them it's all it's bizarre because you kind of know them so well as well so
1: <laughs> very true. You've actually been one of the most requested guests that I have uh received from listeners to be on here, so it's very exciting to have you on.
0: oh my gosh, I'm terribly humbled, thank you, and thank you to all those who requested thank you so. If
1: for those who, who know you, uh, your taste in watches is truly unlike anything that most people collect, you know, being that besides uh, double signed watches, if you will, you, you kind of focus on Art Deco, avant-garde, case shapes and lugs, and mainly from brands like Patek Philippe and Audemars Piguet. Is, is that about right?
0: Um, yeah. So my sort of, it it's sort of the collection is, for me, what I see is basically from about 1945 to about 1965, which I see... In my eyes, is the sort of belle epoch of watch case design in the sort of Swiss valleys, and and I think my rationale is: look, up to in in the before the war, you went through the Great Depression. During the war, obviously there was austerity, and people you know weren't looking at design or anything. And then suddenly, at the end of the war, expectations were unleashed, and people you know threw the hats in the air, and and everyone was free. And I think the watch brands—they weren't really brands then—were Free the the people who were responsible were free to experiment and stuff, and then obviously, when things got commercialized in the seventies and eighties, and you know the, that that sort of constrained creativity. So this period, which I focus on, is I think the the best time, and one sees lovely, lovely uh, things which I desire and have the passion for.
1: So, how long have you been collecting watches, and what made you kind of get started in in Collecting this sort of stuff.
0: Um, well, my, my I've always been to, I've always had an interest and in, in been passionate about art and arts and design and stuff. So I think it, the sort of the the fascination of watches stems from that. And I think from a practical and rational point of view, you know, a watch with a great design um, is is like sort of you having a piece of art on your wrist and having it with you all the time, rather than having hanging it on a wall or. Uh, whatever else, you know, one does with pieces of art, but it's kind of different. So I think there's a functionality to the underlying appreciation and desire for art. Do
1: you remember the first watch that you ever bought and do you still have it?
0: Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it was actually a Brahmin Messier. It was a chronograph, which I probably wouldn't, I don't like so much. And, uh, and I keep sort of joking. I said, well, coming from Africa, you know, no one keeps on time. So, <laughs> when you when you have an appointment with someone, and especially political persons, they keep you waiting for hours and hours. So that's where you can play with your chronograph. But other than that, it has no sort of functional value to me. I'm not attracted to them. But going back to where you asked, mm-hmm. uh, it was a it was a Brown-Mack, uh chronograph. It was a princely sum for me then. I was at university um, at the London School of I used to go past the window every day. It was five hundred and seventy pounds or something. It took me I think about eighteen months to gather that. And I must have gone to that shop on Bond Street at least twelve times to see it. And they must have been so fed up uh, by sort of going by me going in there. And it's so funny, I saw and the lady who saw it, I'll never forget, was a French lady. And I saw her, I think about ten years ago, working somewhere and I went up to her. And I said, I know you won't remember me, but you saw me my first watch. But yeah. And I still have that watch as well. I love
1: it. Bowman Mercy actually made some really interesting Stuff back in the day, I I happen to have a um a new old stock little time only Bowman Mercier with a salmon dial and just really cool nothing you know too crazy or or avant garde but just just fun fun stuff and uh, I think that they are we're making just as interesting a stuff for all the other brands doing some time only military style watches back then
0: and it's strange this watch that I picked up it, it had a sort of precedent in terms of the sort of nineteen. 19- 40s chronographs. And I think it was based on that, even in terms of the size, even the strap uh, was a sort of fold over sort of leather one. So I think, you know, there was a connection definitely, definitely to what, um, a precursor to what I collect now in some way.
1: Yeah, it's a good thing you don't wear it when you're uh, waiting for meetings, just ruining the movement and getting it serviced every two weeks.
0: No, absolutely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is there a Specific period of time that watches like this were being created? I mean, I know you mentioned, you know, the period in which you collect, but if you put all of them in a photo, they all look like they could be from the same era. I mean, are there ones that you're finding that are outside of the range from where you collect?
0: Well, I think it's strange. Like, I've been at it for what, 35 odd years. And obviously, in the first decade and a half, I didn't have the means to be able to buy watches. So one just looked at them uh, and you know, admired them and, and I was like buying on eBay for two hundred dollars and three hundred dollars, which are actually quite lovely pieces. But but when I look at them now, I can you, one can tell. I think you know if if you had a cluster of watches that these were within a few years range that th- these came from this period or this. Period, it's just sort of I think uh, an in, sort of an instinct one develops from it. Um, yeah, so you, from that aspect, one one can tell, but. I've been, one tends to stay, I think, for, you know, I think, again, with maturity as a collector, you tend to focus and stay within a certain comfort zone. But for sure, I mean, I've been in terms of, not only in terms of design, but also in terms of brands. I, mean, I, I used to hate anything to do with the 70s. But slowly, it's, I think, with the influence of Instagram and certain collectors, you know, you, you start seeing things and you suddenly develop a sense of, uh, appreciation. And, and that's really at two levels. One is, oh, look, it's a nice watch, but whether you'd like to buy it and wear it, that's a different thing. But it, it's a, you know, it, I think what social media and you know, access to the internet has done is open up one's uh, traditional way of thinking and boundaries to just, you know, to, you, one's able to just see uh, and appreciate what else is out there. So I think that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when it comes to Patek collecting, there's a specific designer you love. Can you tell us a little bit about that designer and what about these specific designs speak to you the most?
0: So Gilbert was from Geneva. I think he was employed uh, at the age of a young age, 19 or something by Patek Philippe. And they actually let him uh, experiment. And he produced uh, four he actually produced five watches, but everyone sort of, if you read about it, it's like they say it's four, but there was one, which is a one-off. But he he did some amazing designs in, in terms of just designing on paper as well. And and I'm talking of men's watches in terms of the four. So, you know, they were avant-garde for the time and reflected that, that period of time, you know, in terms of sculpture from Mondrian and stuff. So I think that's really where the interest, uh, I developed the interest, and I saw one in an old... Uh, watch catalog from I don't know the late 90s. I think the precursor to Antiquorum was called Friedman Habsburg and something. So I, that caught my eye, and I think I was sort of lusting after that for you know a decade, over a decade till I could afford one. And it's strange. So I managed. I've managed to gather a few of them, and about in the, just before COVID, I think I thought well, it would be nice to have him sign the extract from the archives, which is the bit of paper that Paraphilique give you for vintage watches for those who are not familiar. And I sent it to, I sent all the ex- extracts for the watches that I have, which he had designed to him. And of course, I think being old school, he sort of wrote back and says, well, I think I'll have to get permission from uh, the Sterns whether I can sign on their extracts. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not there, it's just my piece of paper. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I, I, I kept that. and. All the correspondence. It's actually lovely. It it forms, I think, part of the story of the watches uh, and to have the extract signed by him. And so and sadly, he passed away. I think it was last year. That must have
1: been pretty special for you.
0: I I think so, yes. And and it it sort of opened up a lot. I mean, then, you know, one, again, through access to the information that's available, which wouldn't have been possible earlier, You know he designed he when he, when he left them, he set up his own and his primar- his primary business was jewelry, and he even had a shop in New York, which was open until three years ago, and his jewelry was fast it was amazing, and he also designed watches with his own sort of brand, and I've managed to find two of those uh and so it's it's lovely i think if one's able to pursue one's passion its it's it's a wonderful thing.
1: I'm assuming that production numbers on a lot of these watches must have been fairly low because, as you said, they weren't really commercially or serially produced
0: back then. Well, there's two sort of references. I don't want to be too nerdy. There's uh, 3424 four, and 3422. Two. Those were produced uh, quite a few. I mean, no one knows in terms of numbers from Petit Philippe. Some say 24, some say 48. It's somewhere between that number for those two models. And then there are various in terms of the metals and stuff, and obviously you have the yellow gold, rose gold and then platinum and the platinum being the rarest, and then the variations in the dial types and stuff. but this is sort of getting probably too nerdy for everyone, but no, uh no keep keep it up <laughs> uh, and, and then the other two were even rarer, and I think there was only six or eight produced, and there's one, I think there's only six, and that's one which I don't have, and when it's come up, I've not been able to afford it, so it's on my sort of dream list.
1: Uh, of watches one thing i've noticed about your collection versus a lot of others including mine is that your tastes really haven't changed too much i mean do you still find yourself falling in love with the same watches that you've been collecting because you know for me as as a new collector if you will um my tastes are constantly changing
0: um, I think I think for the first ten, fifteen years they did change, and I don't, you know, I think till you find your feet in terms of what what draws you and what what you're in love with. I think it, it they do change, and then it sort of you stabilize and you focus, and and it's all about you know getting different versions or getting better examples. Uh, but for 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 sure, what you know what I collected in the beginning, which was a hodgepodge of various things, it it certainly evolved from that.
1: One thing we don't really see in your collection are watches on bracelets. Is is there a reason for that?
0: Um I've never really liked them. I mean I've I've again of late I've been attracted and I've bought one or two actually. Um uh, but they're too big and I have to resize them and I think well is it correct to go and you know cut a bracelet that's what a watch that's 80 years old? Is that uh a moral <laughs> thing as a watch collector? Um, I, I, I think as long as you enjoy it, it doesn't matter. Uh, I guess so. But um, I just kind of—I don't know—it's something I haven't got to terms with and do. But generally, I, I don't like wearing. I think that I find them too sort of flashy and stuff. But uh, but, but there's some braces I have been uh, attracted to. I must say. What
1: about some of like the old? Uh, Tanks and trays that came on like the platinum brick bracelets and stuff like that. Oh,
0: sure. I mean, I think I'd have to sell the wife and child for that, but uh, I don't know. (laughs) But (laughs) they're not going to come this lifetime. But uh, I think doing
1: that is easier than finding one.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But and and Vegas was cruel to me when I went recently, so there's no (laughs) chance at all of getting something like that. So maybe in the dreams, yes, I'd wear it for sure. Did you hit blackjack? Uh, yeah, uh, blackjack mainly, and and then the roulette tape. But, uh, oh, yeah, roulette will get you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Are there any modern watches that attract you?
0: Um, I, the, A lot of the independent brands do, but I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, I, and I know also there's the sort of paradigm change. Like, you know, 10 years ago, you, it was not correct to talk about price and stuff, and now everyone, it's all about price. But I think some of the independents, I think I just find very pricey, and I don't want to buy a watch where should I decide to, you know, I don't like it or I don't want it, I'm going to lose my shirt and lose half the money. So that's what puts me off. But I, again, I think this has changed. You know, like, for example, Joan and stuff. it's But again, it's now unaffordable anyway, so that doesn't arise. But that's my fear. But, but also, there are a lot of um, independent watchmakers, you know, who... I think, uh, you know, offer, have some amazing stuff in terms of creativity and stuff. And I've certainly been, a uh, so few of them have contacted me to get my opinion and stuff. And, and it's lovely to be involved there. And I, I think for sure I'd be taking the plunge with those. And then and then we also live in sort of difficult times where in many cities you can't even wear any fancy watch. So you have a range of what I think are affordable watches. Uh, you know, Dan Henry, Ferlin uh Baltic, so I think these are great watches for even for someone just entering. You know, they're you know below a thousand dollars and they make wonderful watches.
1: Absolutely. And a big part of your collection is is uh Cartier, but a lot of them are also modern Cartier that have been one-off pieces for you. Are you attracted to any of the newer watches that Cartier's put out?
0: Yeah, for sure. I I think for me, Cartier, you know, as a brand sort of means and stands for design. And I think that's from the very inception, be it watches or jewelry or anything, it's all about design. So I think that that aspect of the DNA sort of carried through. Um, I did buy a lot of vintage Cartier and also before Richemont took over, there were a few which uh, I, I bought. Um, and then sort of when Richemont took over, they basically didn't want to entertain custom Watches and they priced them so crazy and you know and and I think the in my in my mind you know Cartier was like the family jewellers you went in and you know you had a cup of coffee and nattered with the guy and stuff and that all that didn't exist anymore Um, and then about three four years ago I met someone uh, a lady called Philippa at Bond Street and she sort of was totally different and I think the thinking in the company sort of changed. Um, where they sort of decided to offer custom pieces, and and there again started my romance with the brand. Uh, and in terms of custom pieces, there's two kind of levels at which I think every everyone's kind of doing the same variant with you know different coloured dials. You know the the fonts and stuff on the dial remain the same, but there's just variations in the hands or the colour of the dial or uh, of the crown. But I've they've been very kind to me and let me uh, do designs, which are not their usual, but based obviously on the DNA of the brand. And that's fun because you've got to research that and stuff. So that's been wonderful. But of late, I must say, it's kind of been killed uh, by the sheer volume that they've gone for uh, in terms of producing custom uh, pieces. Like, for example, there I the, again, I was blessed to have the opportunity of doing one of the first custom crashes, and I had a black dial one. Um, but it's then. Amazing. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful watch, but then they've gone overboard, and I I, I understand now, and again, from other people on social media, they're, they're doing like 300 custom Cartiers, and if I'd been told that in the beginning, I don't think, to be honest, I would have done it, and then with a lot of my other pieces, I complain where gentlemen in London copied the same uh, sort of dial as I designed in actually 1999, and he said he saw it in the film, which is bullshit. But um, so I had a bit of a, <laughs> I was a bit annoyed with that. So yeah, I went to Cartier, and they're and responsible. Well, if you don't want anyone to copy your designs, just wear it in your living room, and that really pissed me off. Uh, and I think I, did, I didn't. It's a n- frustrating. Yeah, that is because I think when someone you know has a custom piece, part of it is the exclusivity is what we're looking for, and certainly it is for me. And, and and it's not, you know, I don't want to be, I don't, you know, I don't own a nautilus because I don't want to go out for dinner and see 10 others wearing it. It's all about having something that's individual, personal, and sort of exclusive. But if, if, if every man and his dog's going to have one, well, what's the point? Um, Absolutely. So it certainly made me rethink this whole Cartier thing. And I think it's sad because I think the brand's grown phenomenally in the last three, four years. There's been tremendous interest in it. Uh, And also, I think they're not handling custom. I mean, with the recent thing over certain very desirable watches like the Crash, the Pebble, I don't think they've handled it as well as they should have. You don't tell collectors that, oh, you're not spending enough money. There's politer ways and more humble ways to communicate to people. And I know many friends who've been pissed off and have just walked away.
1: Yeah, I mean, when when someone like you is going to a, a maison like that and, and spending the money to have something custom made, which is above and beyond the cost as if it was serially produced.
0: Well, I, I don't think it, it, it's sort of a cost issue. I mean, they're, they're very reasonable in terms of the custom piece of 10, 15 cent more than the standard pieces. So that's not the issue. But it, it's just the way how you you know manage customer expectations, which has been my... Sort of message to them when they have been willing to listen. For example, over the pebble, you know, I, I, I was always told, "Oh, you'll be one of the first because you're so passionate about it. You'll get one." I was even invited to the launch in Geneva, and the night before the grand reveal, uh, I asked, "Well, what? When would I get mine?" And I said, oh, "You're not getting one." And that really pissed me off because why? Hey, why do you take me there and then you know lead me to think I'm getting one, then tell me the night before I'm not getting one? Uh, right. So anyway, they had a change in mind and I was blessed and I'm thankful and grateful and I don't want to sound sort of ungrateful, that they did give me one. But it kind of left a bit of a sour taste, I think. How are you liking the Pebble? I love it. It's a beautiful watch. Uh, it really is stunning. It's up my alley totally. Uh, you know, it's, it's so lovely. Yeah, I think they did a great job with
1: it. I was happy that they didn't go any bigger than they did.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's always the fear. You know, when brands uh get stuff from the past and they say, well we only we don't want to do the same thing, which I don't understand why. Because it was if it was good in the first instance, what, what is the need to make it bigger or change it a little bit? But I think this is to do with corporate egos. You know, everyone wants to say I was behind it and leave a mark. They, they don't say, well I use the same thing from before. So you're you're primarily
1: based in, in Uganda, which means you, you pretty much have to travel to pick up any watch that you purchase. I'm assuming you're not getting FedEx overnight there, so.
0: Oh no, <laughs> <not gonna> reach. <laughs> Does that
1: affect the purchases you make, or is that kind of the protocol for you now?
0: No, I think it's the protocol. And it's, 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 I mean, I've, 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 I've sort of always travelled and stuff. So it, it, it's, I mean, it, what what has changed is is the the internet and the reliability of the internet in Africa, for example, where you can see things. I mean, in, when it first started and before. When there was no access, you know you couldn't bid by phone because the phone line may be cut off in between, so that was out, and you got your catalogs probably two months uh after the auction, so it was a struggle. but uh, these days obviously you can it's everything's done online and stuff, so it it certainly made it easier and I think for me uh that whole experience of going to you know to collect the watch and meet the people who sold it to you is part of it. And I'd even go as far as, I think, in the last year or so, too. The excitement of owning a watch is, obviously, it's there, but it's, it's diminished. And what's more important, I think, for me is the enjoyment I derive from looking for the watch and what that journey entails, the people you meet um, to learn more about a particular watch, if it's got a history to it. That that has more meaning than the acquisition of the watch itself. I know it probably sounds bizarre, but I, this is where I've reached, I think.
1: You also often post on your Instagram stories kind of asking the community to help you find maybe something specific that you're looking for. Does that ever come to fruition?
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and, and each sort of, as it is, I, I for me, each watch means something special. And for example, uh, if it's got an engraving, and I remember like 20 years ago, if I had an engraving, even myself, we not, no one would want to touch the watch. But for me, it's even more special now. And then to know who that person is you know, and to just to learn more. You know, and there's any, when when you do find out. I mean, uh, uh, an example would be there was a Vacheron, uh, which a, a really unusually shaped one. And I remember I posted, and it's got one it, uh, to Adolf 1954. I don't know what the date was. I can't remember. And I found it odd that this was definitely a man's watch, and to uh, it had sorry uh, Dolly on it, to to Dolly or whatever 1954. And to have a, a distinctively man's watch with the word with, with a name called Dolly, I thought that's odd and kind of unusual. And I posted it, and, and a gentleman in New York, who's actually a friend of mine, he, he turned around and he said, well, I knew I knew of this person. And he was actually a Jewish gentleman uh, from Austria, and he migrated. He fled uh, Austria just before the war in 1937, and he became a jeweler on 47th Street. And obviously being called Adolf uh, was not okay uh, and he became known as Dolly, and that solved the sort of mystery for me of that watch, and it, it's, it, it makes it even more special. Amazing.
1: You also love to collect a lot of the same watches, but in several metals. Um, has that kind of become a part of your collecting journey to source the same model in all the metals it was made in?
0: Um, I think that's that, that's a, a trait amongst collectors, isn't it? I mean, we have the sort of rock paper scissors of yellow gold, rose gold platinum and steel. So that, that that's there for sure. And then sort of another layer to that is condition. You know, if one finds something in a better condition, you'll try and exchange or get rid of the lesser one and get the better one. Uh, so that, that that's very much. And then and then for me, it's also been, as uh, like you mentioned earlier, sort of uh, double-signed dials. That's been another sort of fascination. For example, with paddocks, vintage paddocks and the what, so, the attraction for me is this sort of retailer is no longer in existence uh, or it's sort of from South America. Why South America? I just got a, I think it has an exotic twang to it to say it came from Caracas or it came from Havana sure. uh, or from Peru or from Lima or wherever. So, that, it's also, I think, the fun of it, really.
1: Yeah, it's nice hearing, you know, it didn't come from Geneva or you and any of these other big hubs.
0: Yeah, you can get the sort of boring retailers. You know, Bayer or whatever—they're quite common, but uh, the exotic ones make it more special. I think.
1: Since there's limited opportunities to purchase these watches um, that you collect specifically, what attributes are you looking for when you find something that catches your eye? You know, are you are you okay if the case has been a little polished, or does the dial need to be perfect? I mean, obviously, when when all the attributes align, that's the best case. But what do you ultimately care about?
0: Well, uh, the the first. You know, check Obviously, having got overcome the first sort of thing on the list is the design, whether it's attractive or not. Then, I think condition plays a big part. But I think it's when you're when you're looking for such watches, which are you know very rare uh, and don't come on the market. I think sometimes you do need to compromise, but not to an extent because at the back of my mind is I think you know they, they do they do cost money, and I'm conscious of that. And, you know, my background is we were thrown out of. Uh, Uganda uh, as a community in a few decades ago and and i, I don 't want to be in a situation where that if that were ever to happen, and God forbid I have to sell off everything, and i don 't get back my money so i 've put a large part of my savings into watches, and i 'm conscious of that so if one, if you do buy uh, watches where you 've compromised on, for example, the quality it 's going to be tough to sell, and i don 't want to be in that situation so that that 's at the back of my mind as well. Do you have a story that sticks out of a, finding a specific watch that you were looking for for a long time and then ultimately acquiring it? Uh, well, the most sort of one I've, I've always mentioned is the one from uh, I, I acquired from Jason Singer, who I think is one of my idols. Um, so, Also a neighbor of mine? Oh, really? Okay. Um, but I think he's, just, he's such a lovely and cool guy. So to, to say it quickly, I think a lot of people may have heard of it, is basically there was a watch I was looking for a paddock which has lugs which are like a devil's horns. And I was looking for it. This is pre-Instagram when all the forums I just like post like a madman every day I'm looking for it, looking for it I think for 10, 15 years. And it came up for auction and there was a gentleman at Antiquorum called Charles Tell and he sort of uh, told me, always oh, come up for auction. And these were days I couldn't, again, bid on the phone because the phone lines were so unreliable. Um, so I put in a fixed price bid and I lost it. And that was the end of that. Um, you know, I said, well, I'm never going to find that watch again. And then Jason was reading these forums and he saw all my posts. Um, and then he contacted me through Charles and said, look, I'd like to offer, uh, this guy in Africa, the, the watch at the price I bought it. And I thought that was, I mean, that's so amazing that someone so big as this would even consider something so gracious and kind. Um, and, and that's how I came to have that watch. And, um, and it's funny, Jason, I've met him now two, three times. We, we're always in touch, and I'm always in awe of him. But I was at JFK, and I think he was flying to Phoenix or wherever it is, and I was flying back towards home. And we were, the gates were nearby, and he said, "Oh, I, might, well, I think I posted something, and he says, well, I'm at the airport. And I rushed to see him at the gate, and I think my daughter was. And she said, oh, you're crazy. You're going to miss the flight. <laughs> I think like, I've got to see this guy, um, and, and then we've we've obviously met a couple of times after that. But that, that's the story of that watch. Yeah, yeah. So
1: the watches that you collect are are not for everybody, right? It's it's no doubt that you have your own individual unique taste. Do you ever benefit from this when it comes to price, for example? The same way that someone would benefit from buying, you know, like a smaller case watch, something that's not for everybody.
0: Well, I, I think it has its advantages, but I think more and more, and one of the things that gives me great pleasure is that when I, people contact me, they kind of open their eyes that, look, you can find smaller watches that are beautifully designed and stuff, and they're, they're willing to wear. It doesn't have to be some drug dealer type great big thing on your wrist. Uh, I think that I've got anything against drug dealers, but you know what I'm saying. with kind of big watches, but. Um, so I think people, you know, if you, if you see, as I said earlier, that just looking at watches from the seventies kind of developed an interest in my mind. So I'm sure when people see these kind of smaller, more unique watches, you know, so I'm certainly seeing more and it's reflected in terms of what's available and the pricing. I mean, before COVID the year before two years, I found paddocks are very expensive uh, to acquire, and there weren't many on the market, you know, the supplies dried up, people, collectors such as myself will buy, and we're not going to sell ever. And so there's a limited supply. And I started um, looking at Audemars Piguet from the 60s, 50s, 60s, and you could buy them at you know, two, $3,000, really nice, lovely watches, and then suddenly these watches today are now, you know, six, 000, seven, 000, eight thousand. dollars 8000 So it seems that more people have developed an interest, which is great. When you started collecting watches,
1: did you ever dream that you would amass the collection that you've amassed and and have all these you know piece uniques and all that sort of stuff? Was that a goal that you ever dreamt of?
0: No, never. It just it just so happened. And then you sit back and reflect. Oh my God, you know, uh, and question like you know when you go to the bank safe and you look and stuff uh, the things. And and, I, and, I, and the strange part is I don't. I, I know in my head what I have. But where they are and stuff, and sometimes I can't find them. I've hidden them in a shirt pocket. (laughs) I can't find it. I'll spend like four days frantically looking for for a watch or something. (laughs) So actually, my daughter's been. uh, I've 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 been threatening to write a book, but I'm just so lazy. And then suddenly said, "Well, we'll write it for you." And for me, if I'm doing a book, I don't want it to be about my ego to do a fancy coffee table book, which is hundreds of dollars. That's pointless. If I do it, but I, I want it to be affordable. And that, in my mind, that's sort of below 100 bucks, which can inspire people to collect the same genre of watches. But that means I'd have to do it myself. I'm too lazy to do it. But anyway, it's my to cut a long story, she's, my daughter's working on a website for me, where at least that's the first stage of compiling what I have and putting it together, rather than this flick, flick, flick of Instagram, which is pictures. Um, so I hope that will be uh, you know, a precursor to a book eventually. That's amazing. Is that going to be ready soon? Uh, the website? Well, she's done it. And again, she keeps hounding me every other day. When are you doing your bit, which is writing a little bit. <laughs> but I just can't be bothered. <laughs> but I will
1: do it. Yeah, you're, you're, you're too busy finding watches and shirt pockets.
0: Yeah, and, and, I, you know, and it's strange. I think my, my attention span is of a flea now. I think it's this whole Instagram. You know, we all just keep flicking, and no one reads anything. I used to read like three, four books uh, in a month, you know, and I used to have great enjoyment reading. And I, I still keep buying books, and I hope that one day I'll go back to reading books. But I, I just don't do it. It's it's kind of that part of it's quite uh, sad,
1: I think. Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, shiny objects in front of us. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any brands that you admire but you don't really collect in?
0: Um, I look. I, I think uh, the ability to just learn more. I think, for example, longine is a brand. I have a couple, but I, I've been some of the collectors have linked me to, for example, a WhatsApp group where they chat, and it's such a wonderful thing to learn from other people uh, and acquire more knowledge. And 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 I've learned, you know, for example, the brand itself is very supportive to the collectors of its brand in terms of the vintage pieces and stuff. So. Longines is one. I've and I, I have a few friends who collect them, and you know, it's, it's just seeing that and learning from them. JLC is another. I was invited uh, by them two two weeks ago to go to Geneva, and they've launched a book on on their historic pieces. Um, I wasn't aware, and obviously, one knows of it and has a few pieces, but the depth of it, and and again, to the for me the big thing was to meet the other collectors. Uh, and to learn from them, uh, this this ability to learn from other people is is just so great. I think.
1: Yeah, and the Longjing Heritage Department is great too.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, they're part of this. forum, and you see their responses and stuff. But you can imagine some of these other brands. You know, if you ask them something, God, you never no, you never hear anything. Yeah, God forbid
1: they respond to your email.
0: Well, that's another story for another day. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, let's talk cars for a sec because it's no doubt that you love cars. You and I have chatted about it a few times. We've talked Porsche quite a bit, but you also like to collect car mascots and hood ornaments. Mm-hmm. How'd you get into these?
0: Again, it's the the underlying thing is, is is art, and for me, hood ornaments. It's America. It's in American, It's hood ornament ornaments. But otherwise, it's car mascots. I guess. For me I see them as sculptures, mini sculptures and and they're so beautiful, especially the French ones made in the 20s and 30s. I don't see it as a connection so much with cars. Obviously they were made for putting on cars, but for me they're pieces of art. And and you know they don't take up too much space and they are they are affordable. That's the attraction, really.
1: Yeah, I know they're amazing and there's been some great auctions that kind of stick strictly to hood ornaments, but are you collecting ones that are made out of, you know, silver? I know some have been remade out of bronze and and glass from brands like Lalique.
0: And for me, again, I go with what you know draws my heart. Um, in terms of the material, not so much, but in terms of what they are, I love figurative ones. So you know, women, nudes, uh, this kind of stuff, um, and things that have an underlying meaning. A lot were produced sort of after the war, during the war, which were very deeply symbolic in what they were trying to communicate. Uh so th- this this is the attraction really. And and then obviously within an overall genre the art deco style is another sort of attraction.
1: Sure. Are you are you fond of all brands of these old hood ornaments? Are you sticking to things more like you know like the spirit of ecstasy from Rolls-Royce?
0: Well no, I think I it's anything that appeals to me, but there's certain uh certain sculptures, some the guys who actually made them. Uh, there's a guy called Bazin. I think his work, which is very art deco and stuff, so it, it, you tend to sort of be steered towards, a, pardon the pun, towards a certain direction, yeah.
1: Are there specific court ornaments that, you know, you'd love to add to your collection one day? But
0: uh, So there's a, the, the the guru of it is a Frenchman called uh, Michael Legrand, and he's published, I think, four or five books and if, you, if one's interested in this, I'd recommend getting hold of his books directly. He's, I think, on Instagram. His English isn't great, but his books are wonderful and they're reasonable. Um, and that's a good starting point, uh, you know, just to see what's out there and learn more and then develop and take, take the journey from there. All
1: right, Ronnie, let's finish up here with the collector's gene rundown. Sound good? Yep, go ahead. All right, what's the one that got away?
0: Um, So there was a Vacheron with this beautiful enamel dial of a twin-tailed mermaid from, I think, 1953. So this was offered to me, I don't know, 30 years ago um, by a a French dealer who used to live in Hong Kong, and I didn't have the money at that time. It was, I think, thirty thousand dollars or something. And then it came. He said, "Well, if you're not going to take it, I'm going to put it in auction." It came up at Bonhams again. I did put a miserably low bid, and of course I didn't get anywhere for crazy money. But I, that opportunity, I lost that. But the the, the effigy of it was from uh, sort of a French uh, mythology of a fifteenth-century mermaid who sort of symbolized uh, clean water and who was the guardian of clean water and the sort of bearer of anything. But it was such a beautiful enamel, um, I, and the case itself, the work on the on the case, I, that was definitely one. I think. Vacheron, I don't know how many were made, but Vacheron, I have one. And the one that I missed out, I don't know where that ended up.
1: So you know two, and one one is with Vacheron in the in the heritage collection, I guess, or in the museum for them. Yeah. Got it. How about the on-deck circle? So what's next for you in your collecting?
0: Um, I think uh, the sort of vintage JLC um, and Longines, I think uh, going to that, I'm being steered towards that. But I'll continue with what I've been collecting, which is the vintage paddocks and Vacheron, Audemars, and Cartier, for sure.
1: And besides the Vacheron you just mentioned, what's another one that's unobtainable for you?
0: Well, I see it in two kinds. There are sort of ones which I dream about, which I'll never be able to afford. Um, like, I don't know, a twenty-four ninety-nine or a so the, the 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 repeater from paddock thirty four uh even, i think th- i'm getting thirty four seventy three I'm getting older and I, before you I know all these reference numbers and they're diminishing <laughs> with age slowly you've um, add a
1: tab to your website of just all the things that you want
0: yeah well you <laughs> we can dream isn't it <laughs> um, so what watches like that and, and of like the tropical dial uh Padeks. I think these are such beautiful watches I and mean, I, I, I remember seeing. At auction previews and stuff, but these, you know, they're not—they're not going to be in my reach, as I said, in this lifetime. So those are the ones. In terms of what's possibly attainable, I mean, there's always stuff that comes up. Um, I, and, and I think one of the great things of Instagram, besides meeting people and learning more, is that I get offered—and I got you know—you you wake up in the morning in the private mail to just get. The mail someone saying, Well, I've got this watch in it, you know, in my family, and would you be interested in buying it? So, this, this is stuff of dreams for me. Absolutely.
1: All right, page one rewrite. So, if you could collect one thing besides watches and hood ornaments, what would it be?
0: I think I'm intrinsically a hoarder. Uh, so, anything nice, I keep buying and I, I you know, I, I'll keep on gathering. It doesn't, whether it's, you know, vintage photo frames, clocks you name it. Uh, you know, I, I collect contemporary art from Africa, from India, again, probably based on my heritage, art deco, sculpture. There's about three or four artists. I, there's no end to it. If my resources were uh, sort of infinite, I'd just uh, be having a ball of a time. <laughs> Shopping all day. Absolutely. If, that would be my dream life, I
1: think. <laughs> yeah, I think for a lot of us, for sure. Yeah. How about the goat? So who do you look up to in the collecting world?
0: Um, I'm going to be sort of odd and say it's really other collectors, and I, obviously there, there's you know Auro, Jason, in the, and there are many others who are not sort of public. But I, seriously, I think it's just you rank and file collectors such as myself, and just to learn from them and see what they have, and it is great pleasure to just meet people and learn more about them, and and beyond just watches. This is what I love, and they're all all these are goats for me.
1: The hunt or the ownership? And you answered it earlier, but we'll ask it again.
0: The hunt. <laughs> that <laughs> is the, It is the best part. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Wearing a watch is is fun, but making that transaction and finding the thing that you're looking
0: for to me is... Oh, and, and, and if that watch has a story, it's even, it means more. And, I, and I, I link every watch to a story. If it doesn't have one, I don't feel emotionally so deeply connected to it.
1: Absolutely. Most importantly... Do you feel that you were born with the collectors, Gene?
0: Oh, well, I'm a hoarder, so yes, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing.
1: Ronnie, thank you so much for coming on and and thank you for all the information that you put out for all of us, uh, other collectors and all your photos and your your willingness to, to chat and, and share everything.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And it's been an absolute pleasure being with you
1: here. We'll meet up in New York next time.
0: Absolutely. We'll go for a beer or pizza or fried chicken you got it and and come to
1: arizona and, and visit jason and i anytime
0: sure i look forward to it thank you
1: all right that does it for this episode thank you all for listening to collector's gene radio